I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back. In my own research, there's a name that comes up over and over again, Gifford Pinchot. He's got this great mustache like the South Dakota lawman Seth Bullock, and he's got an abiding progressive attitude about American politics. Gifford Pinchot was one of the country's leading conservationists, a forester, and the governor of Pennsylvania for two terms. But while my own interest in the Gilded Age has brought me into contact with this incredible figure of the time, I've missed those closest around him. The Pinchot family is a dynasty, like the Roosevelts or the Kennedys, without the White House. And finally, we have their story, thanks to David Patterson. David has served both as an academic and government historian. He's taught at universities, but he's also worked for many years as the U.S. State Department Chief Editor of the Foreign Relations of the United States. For those diplomatic historians listening, I need not explain what Fruce is. But for any non-diplomatic historians, Fruce is the multi-volume documentary series of primary sources that cover American statecraft from the foundation of the United States to the present day, with much of it being declassified up to the 1970s. David was a big part of that. He's also the author of two other books, Toward a Warless World, The Travail of the American Peace Movement from 1877 to 1914, and The Search for a Negotiated Peace, Women's Activism and Citizen Diplomacy in World War I. His latest book, The Pinchos, might begin with Milford, Connecticut's favorite son, Gifford, but it chronicles a century of family members, including Gifford's parents, his siblings Amos and Nettie, and Amos's three daughters. Now, this is no small feat. The Pinchot papers rival that of the Adamses in their breath. Gifford's papers at the Library of Congress run into the thousands of boxes. It covers everything from the politics of Theodore Roosevelt's administration up until Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And without spoiling the story, David's book takes us up to the Kennedy administration, to the president's assassination, and the murder of his mistress, Mary Pinchot. Now, the Pinchots are all Yale graduates for the most part, and David is too, but we won't hold it against him. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you, uh, not least because we haven't met before properly, but, um, but also because you've got this wonderful new book called The Pinchots, and... This is an American family of some importance, but I think most listeners will know one Pinchot, but maybe not the rest of them. Can you tell us who they are and specifically the main characters in this American family? Well, the book covers uh, three generations of Pinchots um, from about the 1860s to the 1960s, a a full century. And so it can be uh, a little bit complicated. So there is the family tree. And uh, I've been can't treat every member of the family, or, or at least not equally. Uh, I can mention them, but uh, the focus is on um, uh, maybe um, eight or so of these people over the three generations. The first generation is the parents of Gifford Pinchot uh, and his uh, uh, younger sister, Nettie, and a younger, younger brother, seven years younger than Gifford, Amos Pinchot. And then uh, the last part of the book is the third generation, and the focus is mainly on Amos, who uh, had two marriages and three beautiful daughters. And uh, it, it transit the story sort of transitions more to a, a, 
a story about uh, the plight of feminism in the uh, post-suffrage era in the 20th century. Um, but it covers Rosamond, uh, who was an actress, uh, her uh, uh, half-sisters uh, by the second, by Amos's second marriage, uh, Mary Pinchot, and uh, her um, younger sister, Antoinette, called Tony, Tony Pinchot, who married eventually Ben Bradley, who was the editor of the Washington Post and um, was well known for his uh, journalism in exposing the uh, Pentagon Papers as well as, uh, or in, in touting the Pentagon Papers and publishing them in the Washington Post, but also um, uh, later as um, uh, his investigations of Watergate. It's a remarkable number of people that are in here. I think the name that I suspect stands out to most is Gifford Pinchot, who, of course, was the chief forester for a, a great many years, but also governor of Pennsylvania and a, a good friend of Theodore Roosevelt and a, a progressive. Um, the others, I have to admit, I've heard of Amos, I've heard of Nettie, and, uh, uh, but the others have escaped me, and your book does a great job of filling me in. You compare the family to the Astors, the Vanderbilts, Carnegie's, Mellons, saying that they're not the same. So what are those common traits that they have in common with these other sort of dynasties in American history? Well, I think my point is they did not share these values. They, they, they made money, they were capitalists, they believed in that, but they, they were not just selfish uh, robber barons. Uh, they, were, they had a social conscience, they had, had a sense of empathy, they were religious, uh, very strongly religious. Part of the story is how this, uh, how the succeeding generation dealt with uh, religious values and moral questions. They were outstandingly different. They were probably closer in, in their patrician outlook to uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, another very, of course, prominent New York family. And the Pinchos, although they were French in background and lived in Northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, James, uh, the father of Gifford and the, his siblings uh, lived in Milford, Pennsylvania, which was only 70 miles from Manhattan. And, and he, uh, his business was in New York City. And uh, that's where he made his money um, in what we would today call interior furnishings, but he's, their specialty was wallpaper. But they were, they were faithful Presbyterians and the early part of the book really shows that they, they had this uh, a moral conscience. What happened when James came to New York? When he came to New York, he became associated with uh, some of the Hudson River School painters who were concerned about deforestation in the Hudson River Valley and elsewhere. And uh, James, who would become wealthy and through his business over time, although it was a real struggle for him, uh, became a patron, a very generous patron of several Hudson River School painters. And one of them in particular was named Sanford Gifford. Uh, and uh, Gifford Pinchot is named after uh, Sanford Gifford, uh, who was one of the better Hudson River School painters. And in fact, uh, Sanford Gifford was also Gifford's godfather. So, uh, uh, and they had this uh, sense, and you can see it in the paintings of the, the Hudson River School painters. And unfortunately, they, they are not in the book because they're color and the book cannot publish color except on the cover. But that, that's, that's the story of uh, sort of, uh, James's orientation toward uh, uh, maybe pointing his son toward forestry, which was uh, unknown in America at the time. James was an uh, introvert. He, he, he read a lot. And so he began to read about uh, other works, going back to his French uh, roots, reading about uh, Colbert, for example, an advisor to Henry the Fourteenth and uh, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, excuse me. And uh, from the, he got some ideas about the despoilation of uh, the French Alps, for example, and the need to do something to uh, bring that in line. And uh, <clears throat> James picked this up. And yeah, there was a chapter in the book about uh, the uh, upbringing of, the, of his children. And it's very clear that uh, Gifford was a favored uh, child. He, uh, and, and both he and his, and his wife, Mary, uh, spent a lot of time developing the values that uh, Gifford uh, had at, in his later career, uh, pointing him uh, also toward forestry. And eventually, uh, after he graduated from Yale in 1889, uh, Gifford went to France 
to study forestry since there was nothing in this country to study. And uh, then came back and began his career. And along the way, he met other people interested in this. Uh, some of James's friend, like uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, for example, who was a famed landscape architect of the 19th century, who got him his first major job at the Biltmore in uh, North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina. That, that's uh, uh, a good part of the first part of the book is uh, how uh, forestry began and uh, gradually uh, developed uh, with allies and Gifford as a, an extremely active person learning about how Congress worked, how the presidency worked and uh, becoming friends with uh, Theodore Roosevelt who uh, fortunately for him uh, became president but even before that, they'd had this bonding exercise uh, when uh, Roosevelt, back from the Spanish-American War as a hero, had uh, uh, his political reward was to become governor of uh, New York State. TR would have uh, Gifford up on a few occasions to advise him on conservation and forestry issues affecting the state. And at one of these uh, occasions, he if they were ready to, uh, they'd finished their work and they were gonna sit down to dinner and TR challenged uh, Gifford to a boxing match. And uh, I don't know whether they used gloves or not, but anyway, they, they, they sparred and uh, squared off and uh, Gifford soon landed a punch, a solid punch, which knocked the stunned um, Roosevelt to the floor. Roosevelt proceeded to get up and grab uh, Gifford around the waist and wrestled him to the floor. He gained the advantage. So you could say that this boxing wrestling uh, event uh, ended in a draw, but it was a bonding exercise. And uh, Gifford proved himself, he was no dilettante patrician, but he was a real man. And uh, a theme in my book in the first part of, of this Victorian America is where these people believed in the manly pursuits Manly is a word that uh, is uh, repeated again and again by his father. And uh, the meaning of this, I try to explain in the book, but it's, it's, a, it's a complicated uh, idea, but uh, it also involved hunting. And so in his early years, even though he wanted to save, Gifford wanted to save the forest, uh, he was a kind of a, a ruthless uh, hunter. Uh, participating in the Boone and Crockett Club, where Theodore Roosevelt was a member, and that the, the, the membership in that club required shooting, I think, three large game animals. And Gifford qualified. They went on hunting trips as far away as Labrador. So this uh, close association uh, developed, and then when Roosevelt became president, of course, he um, uh, the two forged a really uh, strong. Uh, interest in um, uh, in uh, conservation issues beyond uh, just the conservation of forests. They got into uh, irrigation, uh, water courses, soil conservation, those kinds of things that uh, were important for the uh, future uh, prosperity of the country. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing there that I think I want to just extract a little bit further detail on is this idea of place, because you mentioned a number of places. Milford, Pennsylvania, you talk about this this town and how it sort of missed the boom of a railroad coming through it. But I want to know why that town is important and also how other places in the Pinchot's lives are important as well. Because you talk about Connecticut, New York, Washington, D.C. You also tell us that Gifford Pinchot's conversion to conservation might have come about in the Adirondack Mountains in, in, in around 1879 when he visited, that it changed him somehow. So place seems to be a re recurring theme in this family's history. You couldn't really learn too much about conservation in New York City. That's where that's where uh, the family grew up. They they had a, uh, uh, a, a kind of summer retreat in Milford uh, where uh, James's family still lived until uh, they died. Uh, but James was uh, devoted to his hometown and uh, he, um, the mid 1880s, he decided to build his own chateau, partly to uh, in honor of his father, who uh, really was uh, uh, still. He had he had come over to America and is still in his teens. Decided to build this chateau, and he hired Richard Morris Hunt, who was probably the best known 
uh, American architect at that time and was trained in French design. He had actually uh, trained in, in Paris. And so he built this uh, chateau, which really a castle uh, called Ray Towers in Milford. That is uh, important. In fact, it's on the, the foreground of the cover of the book because I say it's a kind of lodestar. Not only did uh, Gifford inherit this place after uh, his parents died, but he made it the center of his uh, political career in Pennsylvania thereafter. And so even though he had to go to Harrisburg when he was governor, uh, he went in, when the legislature was only in session every other year in those times. So uh, he would have a lot of uh, uh, political conversations and meetings at his uh, Gray Towers. And so uh, and then um, Amos has uh, built a, a, his own uh, cottage on the, on the property. So he, he could retreat. He was live, still living in Manhattan, uh, but um, he would retreat there and his daughters grew up there. And so uh, they, they uh, loved the place. Uh, Rosamond would, uh, was once, Rosamond, the oldest daughter, is once seen. She's been an actress in New York and she's finished with a play. She comes back to Milford and she runs around naked in, in the Sawkill uh, Falls and, and in the um, land around there, which was uh, countryside. And so Lodestar is a kind of new word to me. And it means that's kind of like it was like a magnetic force. And so a lot of the activity uh, takes place there. In fact, um, in 1963, after uh, uh, Gifford's son had died, had uh, inherited the property, he uh, was uh, worried that he he wasn't using the property. He was a he was a yachtsman. He, they sailed around the world and, and on several races to Bermuda with his wife, and so uh, they are managed uh, mainly because uh, Amos's daughter Mary was. Uh, Kennedy's uh, favorite, President Kennedy's favorite lover at the time, and uh, arranged for the uh, transfer of Gray Towers from the Pinchot family to um, the U.S. Forest Service. It's kind, so you kind of, kind of come full circle where forestry starts uh, with the Pinchots and Gray Towers as part of that uh, story. And, and, it, um, and it comes full circle to uh, 1963 when uh, Kennedy accepts uh, this gift. And there's a photo in the book of the um, Mary Pinchel Meyer and Kennedy standing together with her mother and uh, Gifford Bryce Pinchot, who is Gifford's son, and uh, Tony, who was Mary's sister. Uh, the five of them are standing in this. They're all Pinchots, or except for Kennedy. And uh, that, that's sort of the uh, end of the book. Uh, Kennedy's uh, assassination uh, two months later, and then uh, Mary herself, who lived in Georgetown and was had become a painter herself in the color school at Washington at the time, she she too was murdered on the Georgetown towpath in um, October of 1964, only about 11 months after Kennedy was murdered. Unlike many books which sort of trail off, which have a biographical context, content. Um, they trail off and people go grow old, they retire, and eventually they, they die. This uh, story ends kind of bang, bang. It's a little bit different. It, the last part of the story is actually full of tragedy. These people were incredible activists. Is a, is a, activism can accomplish great things, and we know this just from forestry alone, but Amos accomplished many things in, uh, for civil peace and civil liberties. Uh, Risk are involved too. You're a risk taker. You uh, can get in trouble. And I think, uh, uh, in the case of Mary, for example, it, if you believe in conspiracies, and it's quite possible that uh, there was some conspiracy related to Kennedy's assassination too, then uh, you can say, well, Mary knew too much, so she had to be eliminated. Uh, in any case, it's it's a kind of tragic end to a long story. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I hope the listeners are, are hearing all this. It's uh, affairs and divorce, suicide, murder. It's absolutely not what I expected when I when I opened up the book. Uh, it, 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 a lot of this is new to me. Um, some of it isn't new to me. And I, I think that, that's also worth going over as well as some of the, the sort of the ground that's been covered already. I, and you, you cover a little bit of the conservation work of Gifford Pinchot as part of the book. You, you might tell the listeners who might not know about Hetch Hetchy or the differences among environmental activists at the time, how Gifford Pinchot and John Muir embodied the fault lines in the battles over ecology in America in the in the early well the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Yes, uh, it's, it's a it's a central story and an, and a, an important story. I think we're we're still learning uh, uh, more about the relationship between um, uh, Muir, John Muir, and Gifford Pinchot. Their uh, activities. Uh, began very, very well. Uh, they, uh, the Pinchot parents who were, of course, trying to promote their son, when they hear, heard about what John Muir was doing in the natural world, they had him to uh, their uh, uh, house uh, for dinner a few times at Gramercy Park in, in Manhattan with, with Gifford there. And uh, Muir and, 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 and Gifford got along uh, very well. And then um, on a... Um, uh, investigative trip uh, sponsored by the government uh, into forested areas in the West in 1897. Uh, the head of the expedition uh, invited John Muir along just as uh, to just to, to, not as part of the uh, of a commission, but uh, just uh, because of uh, he's an interesting personality and a great storyteller. Gifford got along famously with them and the, the two of them, the, the, the story is that uh, went off together uh, to the Grand Canyon and uh, uh, made beds on on a, on a above above the canyon and lay down and uh, looked up at the stars at night. And of course, it's uh, no street lights around. It was brilliant. 
and Muir proceeded to uh, entertain um, Gifford with these wonderful stories uh, and about uh, the wilderness and and the and the uh, natural world. Gifford was just you know rhapsodic about the whole whole experience. And in fact, uh, I think about forty years later, he writes in his diary. He remembers this and he says this. And I, I quote this in this book that it was experience that he's never he never has had never had since. So it's uh, you know it it it, it still resonated with with Gifford that that much later but they had little different perspectives uh Muir was more of a preservationist um and Gifford was a utilitarian uh conservationist <clears throat> by utilitarian uh, it meant that um Gifford believed uh that the forests could be cut they were a crop and uh but that they there should be reforestation to take place because the ultimate goal was sustainability. You wanted to make sure you had enough uh, forests to uh, to go for uh, you know for 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 the future, so that you did not uh, destroy a, a precious natural resource. Uh, this all came to a head in uh, the controversy over Hetch Hetchy, uh, where um, and it's a very complicated issue, but um, this is a dam that was supposed to be, uh, what was proposed to be built uh, on the, in the edge of Yosemite National Park. And uh, it was supposed to uh, provide water, uh, a, a water supply for uh, the burgeoning uh, city of San Francisco, which in 1906, of course, had been largely destroyed by the earthquake and the succeeding fires uh, throughout much of the city. And uh, it was a complicated issue because many uh, many conservationists, uh, uh, although they respected the Yosemite and didn't want to destroy it, they also uh, believed that uh, San Francisco needed the water, and uh, this was the uh, the most feasible way it could could be achieved. And others, uh, they uh, were willing to have this because it was going to be a a public water supply and not uh, something uh, designed or controlled by the uh, terrible bosses of the city of San Francisco in their view. Gifford is um, uh, head of the Forest Service at this time in the Theodore Roosevelt administration. This is um, in 1907-1908 when this, is first, this uh, issue is first proposed. And James Garfield was a good friend of, of Gifford. He was the Secretary of the Interior. He uh, he endorses uh, this Hetch Hetchy Dam, and uh, uh, Gifford goes along, but Muir objects because it's going to uh, destroy some of the um, most beautiful uh, parts of the of the park and the scenery and everything else. And uh, so you have a, a kind of very fierce battle going on between Muir, who had founded the Sierra Club and his allies in that organization. On the one hand, against the first the Roosevelt administration, and then this issue isn't finally resolved until 1913 when Congress uh, finally passes it, uh, and uh, the Hetch Hetchy Dam is now a reality. And so that that uh, was a turning point, and a lot of preservationists, which have become more active in the um, uh, late 20th century and into into this century, have uh, portrayed Gifford as kind of a villain here. And, um, but I think more recent research uh, tries to show that they really, uh, their, their interests were complementary and they got along pretty well. And because Muir died in 1914, uh, the spillover didn't really uh, uh, affect Gifford's relationship with Muir, but it did affect the relationship between the conservationists, utilitarian conservationists and adherence to Gifford's philosophy. And, um, the, uh, the the preservationists who wanted to uh, nature conservancy and the like, they wanted to uh, retire lands, keep them keep America beautiful by uh, uh, preventing extensive development of pristine areas. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, Hetch Hetchy. I think in terms of the differences between preservationists and conservationists, and I have to admit, my chief interest in the book initially was Gifford Pinchot because I think he's such a fascinating character. Um, but 
I fully admit that the rest of the family is, is fascinating as well. Amos, for example, seems to encompass the flux in American politics that occurred in the early 20th century. And do you think that's fair to say? I mean, is he a really good character to, for explaining American politics? Maybe, but Amos is kind of a unique character. Uh, I've, I discovered that um, nothing's really been written about him, and uh, yet he had a very uh, full and interesting and uh, productive life. He really he begins when he volunteers. He's graduated, just graduated from college. He's in law school, which he found very boring. He, uh, the main, the battleship Maine is sunk in Havana Harbor, and of course, the Spanish-American War ensues. And uh, Amos caught up in this enthusiasm, like many patrician New Yorkers of his of his uh, generation, uh, volunteered uh, immediately to to go uh, serve. And he did end up in Puerto Rico as a cavalry private. Um, and um, he didn't see action because he got there just as the war was ending, but uh, they, although they had some very scary times, uh, but he, he came down with malaria, a nervous condition, which I've determined um, um, it was kind of a, uh, my own horseback medicine here, that uh, he suffered from what might be called high functioning uh, bipolar disorder. This is a, a situation where somebody can operate perfectly normal and seem perfectly normal. But um, at the end of the workday, the person is, is just totally wiped out. And uh, he would tell Gifford, he said, I, I, if it wasn't for the weekends, you know, I could continue this job. He had a job, he got a job finally as an assistant district attorney in New York, New York City. And so I think that's had something to do with his, his, uh, his, uh, his problems later. He could not work he, he could not work in a writer thing and he became a writer, a gifted writer. And uh, so that's what um, uh, helped to define his life is his miserable experience in, um, in Puerto Rico and the whole military experience made him an anti-war activist after that. And so he became act, uh, opposed to American involvement in World War II and later in, in World War II, World War I and then later in World War II. But he, and he was a progressive, an advanced progressive, but he had libertarian thoughts in him, which went back to his college days. He, one of his professors was William Graham Sumner, who was a uh, social Darwinist and believed in the kind of classical laissez-faire economics. Amos believed in the free individual, but he was, and, and uh, was kind of libertarian in that sense, but uh, he was willing to allow for government intervention in things like, uh, the regulation of monopolies, in fact, breaking them up as much as possible. And then the transportation, in fact, he wanted to nationalize the mines and uh, the oil pipelines, the oil, oil fields, and all of the transportation networks, the railroads particularly. When the United States finally went into World War II, despite his, his efforts with the America First Committee, um, he went into emotional tailspin and, and really never recovered. Yeah, the the World War One era seems uh, like a particularly good era to focus in on here because this is, in many ways, the the height of Gifford's popularity. Amos is a, a really important character, and Nettie plays a really important part in World War One. What was the effect of the war on her and and on the other pin shows as well? Yeah, Nettie um, was uh, uh, active in her own way. She was. Uh, did not get along too well with her father, and it may have been something to do with her romance uh, as an escape with um, uh, a British diplomat named Alan Johnstone. Uh, they met in Washington, D.C. when she was visiting her aunt there, and uh, they had a, a romance. And after uh, a long time, because her father, James, was a control freak, and, and uh, he knew he would have to help subsidize this family, since uh, British diplomats like American ones uh, needed connections and they needed uh, uh, a support to advance their careers. She um, marries this uh, British diplomat and they uh, serve the rest of their time in various European capitals. And in World War I, when World War I breaks out, uh, Alan is the uh, chief of mission, that is the minister, equivalent of what we today call ambassador, in uh, the Netherlands, The Hague, which was a neutral country and remained a neutral country during the World War I, but was, of course, in a very sensitive place, right between the German lines and, and Britain. 
Nettie, who's been kind of spoiled, she's in this diplomatic world, a rarefied diplomatic world where there are lots of parties and formality. And, and uh, Alan uh, bought some racehorses and he raced them at the Ascot uh, races in, in uh, Britain, which, which was a high part of the aristocratic social scene. He was really, uh, a, a, a had these aristocratic pretensions. He was a younger son of an earl, but, but under British primogeniture, he was not going to inherit anything. So got some support from Nettie's parents for their marriage. And uh, uh, he, he lived a good life, but he obviously was somewhat successful be, by becoming minister at the Hague. So Nettie is in America when the war breaks out in 19, August 1914, visiting her mother who died that same month. She returned home and she's, you know, caught up in the war as everybody in Europe was. And she tried to figure out what she was going to do. But she had this, uh, even though she was kind of semi-spoiled, she had this uh, social conscience. She had this sense of empathy uh, from her parents and from her upbringing. And uh, she wanted to do something. And so she finally decided she was going to found a hospital in France, a military hospital in France. And she developed plans which uh, were kind of very modest and were turned down by the French and British authorities. And uh, finally, she found a British Quaker who had the same ideas and they combined their resources and their talents and managed to prevail upon the French government to uh, establish a military hospital um, in about 15 miles southeast of, of Paris, uh, which uh, specialized in surgery cases for wounded soldiers uh, during the war, uh, French mainly, but other nationalities as well. For this, she, and this is a family story, and this is a perfect example of it, uh, tried to raise, she used her own resources, she pawned her jewelry, she had a lot of jewelry, she pawned a lot of it, she sold some of it, and, uh, and she prevailed upon her brothers uh, an ocean away to help her raise money for her hospital, and they dutifully did. And uh, eventually they found a wealthy um, a, a wife of a uh, New York uh, businessman give a subvention of a couple of thousand dollars each month. A couple of thousand dollars was a lot of money then. And so, uh, and the hospital uh, survived the whole war and um, there's there, her partner in this, wrote a memoir about it, which is what I can finish this, this particular episode by, by, by saying that um, this was Nettie's big contribution. Of course, it, it was a way of her identification with the allied side, but it also had a very strong humanitarian component. And she also hired uh, the, the chief surgeon who had uh, actually operated on her mother in her illnesses before the war and had gone over to France at the start of the First World War to, uh, to volunteer his services uh, for the wounded. And she hired him and he proved to be a, a really good surgeon and head of staff at that hospital, uh, which succeeded in for uh, four years. It finally closed down toward the end of the war in 1918, but not because of money, but because basically of staff shortages, the demand for, for uh, the trained surgeons and other doctors and even support staff was so great elsewhere that um, it no longer was uh, feasible as, as a hospital uh, for the war effort. I had to ask you about the Pinchot's views on two major questions of their, their time and on our time as well. Where did they stand on women's rights, especially on abortion and birth control? And where did they stand on race relations and equality among people? Mary, the, um, of the first generation, the mother of Gifford, Namus, and, and Nettie, uh, is um, very much um, uh, an elitist. Uh, she, uh, she, she was from a wealthy roots. She was, but she was outspoken, and she was. Uh, she, even though she was only educated by tutors, she had a curious mind. She and she, she wanted to travel. Travel was to her quote education unquote. 
Uh, and that's why at one, one point, the family uh, lived in Paris for three years. And she, uh, even though she, she was a, a traditional Victorian in some ways, culturally, politically, she, she began to warm to all of the changes that were beginning to take place during, the, during America's Gilded Age. Uh, for example, uh, when she would go down to, she loved the beaches and she would go down to Virginia, Virginia Beach in the spring where it was warm to be able to enjoy the sun and a little warmer weather. And uh, one time she just took a side trip to Hampton, Hampton Institute, which was a new black college being founded. And she went to a church service there. She was just overwhelmed. She was, you know, amazed that they these black people seem so sophisticated and gentle and religious and, and uh, uh, well-dressed. And, you know, these kinds of things, she opened her eyes and later on she, she went back and she, during the Civil War, she had had very little interest in the issues of freedom and slavery and um, other uh, social, real social questions of the time. She didn't minister to the wounded or, and, and help with the sewing circles or anything like that in, in New York to, uh, during the war. But uh, she, she uh, warmed to uh, this and she, she later she read uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And she said, hey, that was a righteous war that we were fighting against the South. So in these ways, she was uh, somewhat enlightened. The same way she uh, began to believe that uh, labor was uh, uh, being exploited. I mean, after all, there was the uh, homestead strike brutal uh, strike of st uh, against steel workers in Pittsburgh area, followed by the Pullman strike, and which there, there was, which was put down by armed troops. And uh, so she, she said, well, labor will rise again. I mean, she was sympathetic in at least in an abstract intellectual way. And so when Gifford gets involved in uh, conservation and in the progressive movement, she warms very quickly to this. And she's a, a, you could say an advanced progressive supportive of, of lots of things that were going on politically. Culturally, she still remained a Victorian. She didn't like the fact that the, there were these new trends taking place and there was jazz music and these kinds of people were trying out all these new dances in 1913. And so uh, uh, that, that probably had something to do with um, uh, Gifford's uh, upbringing being um, Part of it comes from his religion, but also from his supportive parents, particularly his mother. On racial questions, Gifford uh, starts as, as uh, many of, of the people from his class as uh, totally unsympathetic to blacks. He used the N word, at least in his diary and in his early years. And uh, he, um, in 1912, when he uh, has his probably as instrumental as any person in persuading Theodore Roosevelt to bolt uh, against uh, Taft and his conservative Republicans to challenge uh, Taft for the Republican nomination in 1912. And then when that failed to start a third party, the Progressive Party, Gifford fully supports the idea that um, they, the um, Progressive Party, despite its advanced uh, political program, it's the most advanced political program of any party until <clears throat> probably the Democratic Party in 1964 uh, or 68, 64, I guess, is, 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 is the key element there. He says, we're only going to work with lily white uh, uh, Democrats or lily white uh, Southerners in, in our progressive party. Well, since the Blacks were already totally disfranchised, disenfranchised and segregated in, this, in the Southern states, uh, that could be uh, justified, perhaps uh, not. That could be excused, perhaps, as a uh, uh, acceptance of a of a political reality. But of course, it, it did not resonate well with blacks in the North, who were restive, and and uh, even though they were still pretty small, it was before the Great Migration had really picked up uh, from blacks moving to the Northern states. Wasn't uh, didn't didn't show well in Gifford's uh, approach on racial issues, uh, but he changed, and uh, you would say, well, it's just a practical thing. In 1914, he runs as a Progressive Party for the Senate in Pennsylvania, and uh, there he actively courts black voters uh, in uh, particularly in places like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. 
he condemns uh, lynching, which is going on in the South. And he gets the uh, support of at least the black newspapers and uh, trying to woo them away from Republican allies, which the blacks still were mostly uh, heavily in favor of uh, the Republican party as the party that had freed them going back to the Lincoln era. Uh, Gifford continues this and, and he, um, he, when he runs again in uh, 19, he, he's elected uh, finally as governor in 1922 uh, with support of blacks. And, um, and then he, um, uh, again, he, he's elected the second time as governor in 1930. In those years, uh, uh, Pennsylvania governors could not succeed themselves under the state constitution. So he uh, served for four years, took a break for four years, and then came back and won a second time. Uh, and in both those cases, and particularly the second one, which uh, occurred in 1930, just as the Great Depression was deepening, he um, did more to uh, support Jews and Blacks um, in his administration. He appointed um, uh, a, a Black, not to a cabinet position, but to a uh, a similar position. And he also uh, became very supportive of women. And here, I think the, uh, the key is, uh, his, is his wife, Leela, whom he did not marry. He did not marry until he was in 1914. Um, Leela was from a, uh, she was kind of, a, you might call her a tomboy. She'd even played polo as a, as a young, as a young woman against male, uh, uh, company against male competitors. She was a uh, strong feminist and would later run for Congress herself three times. She failed, but uh, that's, she loved the game of politics. And so she was an ally to Gifford in his politicking, but uh, she also uh, in 1920, uh, 1922, uh, when Gifford is running for the first time, here are women newly enfranchised um, most of them couldn't even vote in 1920. So there was still a lot of energy in, in that uh, whole movement. And so uh, she uh, already well-connected because with the suffrage movement, she had been in, involved in the Pennsylvania suffrage organization as a key person. She uh, rallied the women to uh, behind Gifford's candidacy. And in Pennsylvania, it was all about winning the Republican primary because the uh, Democratic Party was notoriously weak. They, they had not elected the governor, for example, since the 1850s in, in Pennsylvania. Mainly, I think, because of the uh, women's vote, they voted, and the, the best evidence we have is that they voted in as in large numbers as the men, as the men in, the, in that primary. And he eked out a, 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 a victory in that primary against uh, several other factions that were putting out their own candidates. And then he went on to win the governorship. The other, other thing I, I should mention uh, in Gifford's political connections is that we associate progressivism as a kind of urban um, phenomenon that uh, was a new middle class that grew up uh, and mainly in, in uh, large towns and cities and uh, that progressivism is an outgrowth of what was happening in many cities, Toledo, for example, and uh, Schenectady and places like that where there were changes taking place. They were getting control of the utilities so they would be working in the public interest. And then this progressivism becomes a national movement. There's been less written about the, the rural or agricultural dimensions of progressivism. And Gifford very neatly, I think, shows that there was, at least among some progressives, this agrarian component to progressivism. And it's something that should not be ignored when we, when we look at um, uh, that progressive movement as a whole. Um, and he did very well um, in, the, um, in the rural parts of Pennsylvania, which is an enormous state. It's the second biggest state geographically east of the Mississippi at the time, in, as late as the 19, 1950, I believe, it was the second largest state population-wise, second only to its neighboring state of New York. So it's a very diverse state, but uh, 
there was lots of, of small towns, rural communities, hamlets in, in the state, and they very strongly supported Gifford. One of the issues that uh, brought them together uh, was prohibition. And we, we tend to give prohibition uh, a bad name, um, low marks, because uh, it seems to be somewhat, somewhat unprogressive, even repressive, in denying people uh, the ability to drink. And Amos himself loved to drink, and he was perfectly willing to go out and, and buy uh, liquor illegally from a bootlegger as long as he knew that the quality was good. But Gifford uh, was a teetotaler. He didn't like alcohol, but more than that, he he thought that uh, the liquor industry was deeply embedded, particularly in, in cities and with city bosses and city machines, and that uh, it led to corrupt politics. David, yeah, I can ask you one last question. I mean, a lot of the book surprised me. What surprised you about the pin shows beyond the things that we've already mentioned? Well, I think initially it was it was their activism and not just Giffords, but um, you know, almost all the family members. You know, we associate, um, I associated like you, I think with the family with Gifford and uh, conservation, forestry, conservation, environmentalism, and, um, and maybe a little bit about his political career, but uh, not these other parts, the family dynamics and um, the, um, uh, the uh, interest in the arts uh, that these people had as patrons, and in the case of Mary Pinchot Meyer as an artist herself, fascinating people and, and um, uh, not people that just sat on their wealth and had a good time. Having a good, good time was being involved in something. And they enjoyed that and um, uh, sometimes at, at cost. Well, I couldn't agree more. It's a compelling read and uh, really well written and researched. Obviously, you've done a, a ton of research. There's so many papers. I know Gifford Pinchot's papers alone, uh, the, the boxes run into the thousands, I think. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an exceptional amount of work that you had to do to get this story. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks so much for, for, for sharing some insights. And I hope others will go out and, uh, and buy a copy of this book. Thanks, David. Thank you very much. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.